Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Brian Masana, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. What a pleasure. It's great to have you here. Um, we just chatted a little bit before we started recording and, and uh, I think we're clicking already. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to having this conversation and learning a little bit more about you and your firm and the things that you're doing. Um, let me introduce you. Brian Masana is an architect based in New York City, uh, founded in 1990, 90, 1996 by Brian and Toby O'Rourke. Masana O'Rourke is renowned for crafting spaces of sublime restraint and ethereal beauty. Brian trained under architects Richard Meyer, Thomas Pfeiffer, Hani Rashid, Peter M Marino, um, working on projects including the Canal Plus headquarters in Paris, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Barcelona, the Christian Dior, Paris flagship, and several others. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation, Brian. I, um, I'm, I'm thinking that you and I are very much on the same page in terms of building small firms and uh, focusing on the business and sharing our knowledge with one another and sharing our knowledge with other architects. Um, and so I'm excited about that. But before we get into the conversation about what you do and how you do it. I'd love to know where you came from. What, um, when did you discover your passion for architecture and what or who inspired you to get started as a? Um, well, I, I think I was really lucky. I have always wanted to be an architect. 
um, my father, who is now 86, had his own design firm, interior design firm for 40 plus years. Uh, so I grew up in it. I was fascinated by, I mean, the first thing I remember is going to his office and I was fascinated by the models, the renderings, for some reason, very into the storage room where all the pencils and erasers were. Yeah. Um, I can still smell, you know, like those, like we don't have that kind of smell anymore in offices. Right. Yeah, I, like, exactly. All you hear is like click, 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 click. Um, yeah. But uh, I love the desks and sort of the rolling of the uh, uh, the T bars and all that stuff. And um, it was just, it was really fascinating to me. And so I would start to accompany him as a, I mean, I'm, we're talking like probably eight, seven, eight, nine years old for doing this and then going to visit sites with him. And then we were very fortunate. He, he's actually, he's Italian. He immigrated when he was 16 and uh, put himself through school and went to Pratt and um, a few other schools. And uh, he eventually had our our house built um, in Los Angeles. And it was just an amazing experience because we would visit it every weekend and yeah. I'd watch the whole process of it being built and, you know, meeting the contractors. And uh, I was just fascinated. So as growing up in, in the area that I was growing up, there's always some sort of construction going on. So I would always visit the sites and, uh, was that was yeah. that was that when you learned about architecture? Because you said your dad had a design firm, interior designer. When did you discover that there was a profession called architecture and what what an architect did? Do you do you remember that that moment and what inspired you, or was it just sort of intuitive through sort of experiencing your everyday um, life? Well, I think it was a combination of things. So, I think with the house that we grew up in was very architects because he designed the whole house so from exterior to interior and he would, he would build models and um but i knew who like frank lloyd wright was yeah. um i uh, um we were exposed to when we were on vacation we went to i remember going to death valley and going to a place called scotty's castle which was this amazing house in the middle of the desert i also remember being like in awe of going to visit Hearst Castle and uh, discovering Julie Morgan um, and all the pieces that William Randolph Hearst collected to create this amalgamated um, architecture um, for his estate. So I was, I understood the difference between, I said the difference, but I understood the both the difference and the similarities between interior and architecture. And I think actually now that I'm saying all this, that I feel like that interior exposure and education has made me, uh, obviously has made me what I am in terms of like our work in the office here is like 90% these days of interior architecture just mm -hmm. by being in located in New York city. Right. Um, but coupled with that, uh, background, uh, I really think that our office really is is inf infatuated with both interior space and exterior space, um, which I think 
I think it's really important for, for both architects and interior designers to understand both sides of the coin. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like because you were introduced to design and the architectural world so early that it was just always part of your existence. It was always part of your understanding of the world. Always. Um, and my father actually should have been sort of a set designer because he's, he was always, is always still antsy. And so our house is, because uh, that house that I grew up in and then they later sold it and um, renovated another house, but it's constantly, I wouldn't say in flux, but um, it's either an addition mm -hmm. or the change or something. And when I had the good fortune of building my own house and I remember him coming to it and saying, anything new? Do you, have you done anything new? And I said, no, it's exactly the same as the day I <laughs> opened the door and moved in. Interesting. Like, uh, it's yeah. not, it's, I have my, my, I have two younger brothers and we're all the same. Like we have like master plans and once the plan is done, it's right. done. Right. There's you no design more. it to be finished. Exactly. And it's finished and it's finished. Yeah. And it's like a work of art. It's you finished yeah. the work of art and it's, yeah. but it sounds like your father, reveled and enjoyed the evolution of design. He, that it's he always improving. Loved it. Loved it. Loves it. Still yeah. loves it. Yeah. Still loves it. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So uh, interesting to hear your origin story because a lot of architects come to architecture later. Many of them come to it in childhood, but they could pinpoint that moment, right? Somebody introduced me to an architect and I learned what architecture was. Right. Um, but you were introduced to it so early because it was part of your everyday existence that you were always, you always knew what it was and always, it was just part of who you were. Part of who I am. And I don't know if that's, sometimes I think that's a great thing um, because I, I, I could go straight into and go deeper into what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, um, I, sometimes on the flip side, I think to myself, oh, you know, I really wish I would have my bachelor degree instead of architecture was in English so that I could better both verbally and in writing articulate what I am yeah. trying to accomplish. Uh, because I, I would say that if, if I had a weakness and I don't know if I have the weakness, but I feel like I have the weakness is that I, I'm much more of a doer and um my explanations i feel are very simple and and i think my my our work is probably very similar to that it's just sometimes i'm trying to find deeper meaning and the reality is that uh no it's you know I, we focus on very elemental aspects of of i was going to say design but more about kind of human experience um and how someone is going to inhabit uh, one of our projects and what, so, and then there are sort of timeless elements such as light and shadow and, um, space and scale that I find if properly and thoughtfully understood and executed for every project, it really doesn't matter whether or not you're a modernist or you're a minimalist or you like Baroque architecture, you just apply those, those basic fundamentals and your work is always going to be beautiful and and i think lasting in a way yeah yeah i could see that in your work when i when i looked at it um Thank you. It, it's beautiful and it's 
Thank you. Beautifully simple, right? And and I and I want I want to talk about your process and all of that. I, but I want to I want to continue the story of how you became an architect. So you you it was always part of you, and um, you. Uh, so, so where do you go to school and 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 that process? <laughs> So, and again, I'm really, I'm an open book, so I will let you know. So uh, I always wanted to be an architect. Um, I grew up in Southern California. And um, at that time, there were really, I mean, there was, in my mind, there were three schools to go to in California, because I was California born and raised. I had no thoughts of like going anywhere else. So it was either Berkeley, which in my mind was more conceptual and there was Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which was more pragmatic. Um, And then there was this fledgling little uh, school called SciArc. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, and SciArc was in my backyard. Um, And uh, for some reason, again, I think it's just part of my personality and I've tried to think about why, but then I also try to think about like, why is coffee ice cream my favorite? flavor like I, I no one i don't drink coffee but for some reason that is my go-to ice cream and um you know can i dissect it and i could i guess or, or maybe i can't so I, I was i've come to realize like i am who i am and i decided i would go to cal poly now um apparently my grades weren't fully up to the par um when I applied at coming out of uh, high school. So I went to a little school called UCLA for two years <laughs> where I studied uh, general education. And I was like, Oh my God, like this is, this is literally hell for me because I'm in <laughs> these auditoriums full of people, students. I'm taking these courses. Like I just, I couldn't understand what this had to do with me and my future. And so um, I, I always call, think I always tell everyone I'm a late bloomer. Like I'm always the late last person to the party, etc. So this time I decided, okay, I'm going to apply to like a lot of schools, and I did apply to a lot of schools, and I got into all of them this time. <laughs> and I went to Cal Poly, and uh, I was immediately like my life clicked, like everything like made sense. Like yeah. I was t- t- doing design classes, um, history of architecture. It just like, Oh yeah, this is exact. This is, this is me. Yeah. And uh, I was on campus for two years and, and Cal Poly, I, I want to say is an amazing school. I'm, I'm assuming it is still is an amazing school. It was an amazing school when I went there. I mean, the opportunities and the kind of discussions that I remember having with professors and they're really really helped inspire me and I think other students to, to, you know, cause we're primarily all from California. There was Northern and Southern and we met in the middle at Cal Poly and um, uh, an unusual school because, you know, we're, it's kind of a tech school, but then you're drawing and you look out under the courtyard and there are, there's literally one time I remember like a cow, a steer like running through and then two <laughs> cowboys like trying to, <laughs> get the the steer and i was like yeah we're at cal poly you know and then there's these crazy kind of artsy element as well so um i spent two years there uh, my my 
second and third year. And then there was an op, there had options. And one of them was to take a summer class or summer school at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Fontainebleau. So that was my first time to, to Europe. And I had been for some reason an Anglophile all of my life. I don't know why I always watched like Sherlock Holmes and, you know, all these English uh, old movies from the fifties and sixties or whatever. And so we touched, touched down in London and I was just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And the scale of the, the streets, the urban fabric, the buildings, I was just like overwhelmed. It was, it was beyond amazing. And, and we were there for a week. I went with a bunch of students and then we, we crossed over into, uh, into, into France, into Paris. And I was like, oh my God, this is the first time I've ever not been able to understand the language. Like I was like, how are we going to get from here to there? So I went to Fontainebleau. I was there at the most amazing time because it was Le Corbusier's centennial. And as a, as a school, which was small, we would get into these buses for two weeks, I believe. And we, I, I always call it in search of Corbu. And we went to all over France and we stayed at La Tourette. We went to Ronchamp. We went to, um, wow, to what the, an experience. The, everywhere. Right. Um, and so my mind kept opening up, right. Like, yeah. all, like I just wanted more and more and more. And uh, I had already organized that after that summer, I would, go to we had a consortium program at Virginia Tech's um, program in um, Alexandria, where six universities sent about 10 people from each. And again, like here now I went from from Europe to DC, which I had never been to the East Coast. So all of a sudden, I go from California, which is stick build, track homes, stucco, you know, uh, uh, at best, I'm getting um, Adobe uh, tiled roofs, but now it's like brick architecture. It's like, oh my God, this is crazy. And you could take the the um, subway into DC and see all this amazing art. And it was just, it was amazing. So probably like long-winded. but No, uh, this is what I want to do. I want to <laughs> understand where you've come from because it's a fascinating story. To, to have grown up in the family that you've grown up and have that influence and then go to Cal Poly, then go to Europe. Now in DC, you could start putting all the pieces together, right? Yes, and when yes. you start looking at what you're doing today, it's very clear how that influence, right. where those influences came from. It's very Thank interesting. You. Thank you. So I then from Cal Poly, uh, from Virginia Tech, I spent my last year uh, in Florence studying with Cristiano Toraldo de Francia, who recently passed away in the last couple of years, and he was a member of Super Studio. And again, like, so I'm now living in Florence, Italy. Yeah. Like four bridges from the Ponte Vecchio um, on the River Arno. And uh, I mean, it was amazing. I went to Moscow um, and uh, uh, Leningrad then. Um, and I was just like, Oh my God, where am I? What am I doing? And you know, I, I'm Barcelona. It was again, just my, my mind keeps expanding. And that's, that's what I really, I still to this day, like anyone who works with us, whether full-time or interns, like I 
try to encourage as much as possible to experience life because I mean, it's not only good for your soul as a person, but um, for architecture, for design, because right. you're, you're constantly learning about either what's new or just your understanding of like, Oh, this is a space that I like. This is a space I don't like, you know, what do, what elements make a space that makes me feel good. Um, and in fact, a lot of our work, a, a lot, we have a lot of European actually uh, client uh, clients, but a lot of, a lot of people say that when they look at our work, it looks European and I, when they say that, I think that they mean like that there is sort of a, there's an understanding of sp- a space because we work sometimes in limited spaces being in New York City. Um, but also, I guess maybe the, you know, the Europeans modernism or minimalism is much more, ex- I guess, ex- used or acceptable or in comparison to uh, the United States where maybe traditional architecture that sort of pottery barn-esque kind of vocabulary is more uh the norm right um so yeah so then after italy like uh that was my last year and in fact i remember giving a lecture at cal poly san luis obispo and after my so i was only on on campus for two years i graduated but i didn't go to graduation and uh they changed the rules so you can no longer you can no longer be away your last year. You have to be on campus, which means you can only do one extra, you know, curricular off-campus um, option. And uh, and I said that was, and, and it was because of me, because I really only went to on campus for two years. Um, but I have to say, I turned out okay. Yeah, I would <laughs> say for sure. So, how did you get to New York? So you're in, you're in. Virginia. So in New York, so this, I will uh, put a, sl- a slight love connection to this is that I, um, Toby and I uh, met at Virginia Tech. He was coming from Oxford Poly. He was uh, studying his, he was in his, what they call diploma, which is our graduate level. And we met there and we, became boyfriends and he went back to finish his last year. I went back to finish or he went back to finish up something. Yeah. His last year, I went back to finish up a qu- my summer quarter and we, we wanted a place that we both had been to that was, we felt was amazing and could be a good place to, to live. But also we wanted a place neutral from our families um, to kind of honestly, just to be gay. Uh, I mean, both of us, yeah. you know, at, at that, in that time, it was scary to us. And uh, this was a kind of a neutral place. And I went to work for Richard Meyer. So it seemed like a, a logical place. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a great place to, to start to, to ex- expand all of the experiences that you've had. Yeah. Right. And where else better than New York City? Yeah, you know, and Frank Sinatra said, you know, if you can make it here, you can make yeah. it anywhere. So right. So so how did you so did you did you start at Richard Meyer? Is that the I did. So my story is, and this is pre-9-11. So I I got I had my bar mitzvah money that I took out of my my savings account or whatever. I got on a red eye. Toby moved, got on his flight, we met, 
got this little studio apartment. I built a little portfolio in a week. And then when we had been to Barcelona a couple of years before, I think, and bought this book, like the 25 New York architects. And so I knocked on like Stephen Hull's door, Gwathmin Siegel, Richard Meyer. They were all there. They're all there. So it's like, so I went into Richard Meyer's office and Tom Pfeiffer, Tom Pfeiffer hired me. Um, and that was again, like a dream come true. Yeah. Um, uh, cause I had liked his work from the moment I, I had, uh, discovered it in my undergraduate school. And I actually met him. He was building a house near, um, where I lived and, uh, as a funny story, but I thought this could be a Richard Meyer house. My, uh, schoolmates were on a field trip visiting morphosis and a few other places and i said you know what let's just go and check it out and it was on a i think a sunday and we we, we, it was all gated up and this guy came out and said oh you know are you here to see the architect and i go uh sure we're here to see the architect um and i thought oh this would just be like the executive architect right Right. who shows up it's richard meyer and uh he introduces himself and says come on in, take a look yeah. around, whatever. So yeah, I, I, I've kind of had, I've had a few, I, I think in my mind, a few kind of amazing experiences that have occurred uh, that have been uh, pivotal in my life and my career. So how did you go from Richard Meyer to Masano O'Rourke? So I was at Richard's for 18 months and then I went to Columbia graduate school for a year the the advanced program so it's three semesters in a row and believe it or not after graduation i didn't really want to be an architect i was like oh there's so many (laughs) so many things i wanted to do i thought to go back like should i apply to nyu's um film school i want to be a director and it's like oh that that is now that i think about it it's very cliche like um to do that and uh seduced by the city well, seduced by the city, but also like thinking, oh, like there's so much more than just architecture. Like architecture can't necessarily say the things I want to say. Yeah. Um, so um, I worked at a small this interior design firm in the Lower East Side and then decided I was going to teach. So I went to, I taught at the Louisiana, uh, Lof- University of Southwestern Louisiana for a year. And then I came back. Um, I couldn't handle that the Ku Klux Klan were walking about on campus yeah, one time. It's a pretty, pretty big shift from yes, the city it was a big shift. There. But again, great experience, great teaching experience, uh, all of that. So um, I worked for a few firms, smaller firms for a while, um, and then at Peter Marino. And I was there for six weeks and a friend of mine who had worked for, with me at Richard Meyer and partners, uh, she worked in, um, she was not an architect or a designer. She was working at the uh, front office. She had become the assistant to the creative director of Donna Karen. And through another friend that we had both worked at Richard Meyer, he said, Oh, call Brian. Maybe he could help you out. So she said, come on in. We, we may have some work for you. And I thought to myself, oh, this is like, you know, a little project, some uh, night owl, moonlighting. Yeah, some some moonlighting, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I walked in and like an hour later, I walked out with an entire um, 
departments or not departments, sorry, uh, store to design in Santiago, Chile. And I went into Peter Marino's office and I quit. Um, and uh, that changed the direction of. Was that the beginning? Was that, that the, was beginning the beginning? Of the so firm? that was Masana O'Rourke. And Toby was working at uh, Ralph Lauren in their store design. He stayed mm -hmm. there for a year um, as we got more work from Donna Karen. Um, and I'm really grateful for, for Donna Karen. I call it design, but you know, it's a, uh, they had a, let's say a box of right. design elements yep. that you would arrange. But for me, I was like, it was at that time they were going for their IPO. Um, not, not at the time, but a little bit after. So they're building up their entire, yeah. you know, inventory of stores. So it was go, 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 go. And we were designing their, their showrooms in New York and Milan. And it was just like a whole new world. Um, and uh, again, very New York, like, you know, this could only happen in New York. So, uh, uh, that's, that's, that was our first client. And, yeah. uh, when that ended, we were very, we were freaked out. Um, uh, but it was the best, <laughs> best thing ever because it allowed us to, to grow and yeah. to diversify. Well, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out our financials on our own is not one of those things. Luckily, we have FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business, from building and tracking invoices, to managing online payments, to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the digital bills and a receipt scanner, saving you up to 11 hours a week in the process. It's also super easy to get up and running and the award-winning FreshBooks support team, they are always available to answer any questions along the way. Compare that to some of the other financial management tools out there. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days, no credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So what will you do with 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by rcat.com. We all have that one story, that one project that had such a unique situation that it required a solution that you had rarely considered before. We share these stories in private professional circles with our friends and our colleagues, but there has never been a collection of these stories of conflict and triumph all in one place until now. Detailed is a podcast series that features architects, engineers, builders, and manufacturers who share their insights and expertise as they highlight some of the most complex, interesting, and oddball building conditions that they have ever encountered and the ingenuity it took to solve them. Join host Sharice Lakeside, AKA CSI Kraken, a senior specifications writer at RDH Building Science as she uncovers lessons learned to help you navigate similar challenges that may arise in your next project. Detailed, an original podcast by Artcat. Listen and subscribe right now at artcat.com slash podcast. That's rcat.com slash podcast, A-R-C-A-T dot com 
slash podcast. Detailed. Every building has a story. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. When you moved to New York, did you know that you wanted to have your own firm? Was it part of the plan? So I don't ever have, uh, for some reason, I don't have plans, but um, I did have, so that was always my plan since I was a kid. I always wanted my own firm. Ever since I went to my dad's first office Mm -hmm. that he was working at, I thought to myself, so at that office, it was, it was a boutique firm. They did beautiful work. They had this, their own little, not a restaurant, but they had a cook there. And I thought, this is what I want. Like, I'm very family oriented. So for me, it was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to open my own office. It's going to be this small firm that we're all working together and we eat together and we go out together. And um, so that's. So you had uh, that, you had that vision as a child? I have that vision so, as a child. So it was always part of you. It's like, yes. this is, this is the dream. Yeah, it was just so, a matter of matter of time. Yeah, yeah, and the, and so when you had that opportunity with Donna Karen, did you see that? Well, you just said it, that it, that you didn't really go there thinking that it would be the beginning I, of your firm. I, yeah, no, you I had no out, idea. Came out of the office and said, "Hey, it looks like I, we're starting a firm." Well, I mean, when I so because of the scale of the project and the fee that they were giving me, I said, "Oh, yeah. I literally can just stop working, um, and let's see how this goes." So. Right, uh, right. That was it. And what? when was that? How long ago was that? 1996. 1996. Oh, right. That's how I introduced you. 1996. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's grown significantly by then. What? How, what's the firm look like today? So the firm looks good. <laughs> I say that laughingly because, you know, we're not a huge firm and I have gone through periods of like feeling insecure about our size and um, we have been much larger, but I'm now very happy. We're four people, um, soon to be five. And we've been really good about trying to focus on the work that we want to work on and, um, and making sure that, you know, when you grow in terms of manpower, um, you have to, as a, as an, business owner you have you understand like there's you have as the as the machine grows larger it has a larger appetite right and you you might not always be able to be as discerning um because unless you want to unless you want to fluctuate in size all the time and i'm i'm toby and i are not that kind of we're not built that way like as i said we're family so um for us like we we want someone to invest in us and we want to invest in that person. So I'm not interested in, in like, Oh, this could, ha- you could be here three months. You could be here a year. You could be here for 10 years. I'm trying to build longevity because security for, for both of us works better. I think for, for both parties. Yeah. Your portfolio is beautiful. How, how is that? Was that strategic and intentional that you were going to, do that type of work and turn away other types of work. Talk about that a little bit. How do you develop a portfolio that is so, you know, from an architect's point of view, it's the dream portfolio, right? It's, is it? it's, what, it's oh. what 
architects <laughs> want, right? That's that's they want to be able to do that level of design on their right. projects. And obviously, it's also you're presenting your best work on your portfolio. Um, but Rizzoli also just asked you to do a book, yes. right? a, a monograph. Yes. And so it's it's you obviously have a portfolio that is worthy of a monograph. And so was was that when you started the firm, was that strategic? The, the reason I'm asking is because there's architects that struggle with that. How do I not do the everyday bread and butter stuff and fill my portfolio with that and not have enough time to do the things that I really want to do? How are you, uh, is there a sacrifice in order to get to that level? What Share that a little bit about your thoughts and how you got to where you are design-wise. So I will briefly say that, so the design style really, or the, design ethos really comes from, I think, both of our ch our childhoods. Mine specifically, because uh, I'm talking, um, I used to be, so back to that Scotty's Castle that I visited yeah. in um, uh, Death Valley. So we would go on trips, family trips about twice a year. And I would be the kind of person who would collect, do you know, when you go to the motel or the hotel, there's that little kiosk with like, where you can go horseback riding right skiing. all the bro all the brochures yeah for some reason i was just like a pack rat i my my room <laughs> so there i grew up as i said i think the two younger brothers all of our rooms were identical mine was just full of stuff and i think it was basically like my, it was my second to last or my last year of high school like i had this epiphany and i don't know what it was i, I constantly try to think about it but so my room was, each of our bedrooms were themed and mine was Western. And I had wood on the walls. I had bunk beds. I had antlers, sh horseshoes, books, um, uh, a, a fish tank. I had everything. And uh, from years and years and, and boxes full of stuff. So yeah. I threw all that stuff out, took all the wood out, painted it white, put in a gray, oh, interesting. gray carpet, white, um, shades a gray kind of futon that looked like a, a cartoon of a sofa that would you just pull and it became a, a bed and like yeah. this red lamp and and some and shelves with some books and that was it what inspired so, you to do that was there some moment in your life that sort of said i don't want all this stuff anymore i want to go more minimal there was but i i'm i, I can't you don't know what it is i don't know what it was yeah so so i will speak about for both of us is that visual noise or distraction is something that we're both acutely aware of. Mm -hmm. um, so the less for us is the better. Um, and, and not, not, listen, it's not for everyone. Not everyone can yeah. either live with that. You know, my thing is also like, I don't, I'm, I'm a horrible consumer. I don't buy a lot of stuff. Um, I like my stuff to last. And I also, um, probably i don't know if you can see it but there's artwork in the back i have one two places for artwork in, in uh this apartment and i have much more artwork than there's walls for but i switched them out you know and i i don't need to have everything out all yeah. at once so my ideas and our idea is really that you kind of heighten and make special things by having less um and also the natural things about space and scale and light for me are ever light is ever changing. So it's, and it's timeless. So those spaces are always, like I said, you know, my, my house is 20 years old now. 
And uh, it's not a thing I would change about it. So back to the question, which was, how do we grow a business and not take on every single project? Well, the reality is every architect takes on projects that they don't necessarily, well, there's, I think there's always a point where an architect will takes on work that they might not necessarily want to. And that's because obviously if you're an architect who needs to generate an income to sustain their livelihood, then that's what you do. Um, on the other hand, you may, may, may take a project because you really think it's going to be amazing and it could be horrible. Um, but we have, we have over the years as we, for some reason, I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to get a book published by Rizzoli. I always wanted to have my artwork acknowledged. I've always wanted to have it photographed. So it's always been the process, right? Yeah. So every time a project is finished, we, we, we put money into the photography and it's, and it's, we don't, we hire the photographers who are really good and who are also connected uh, and not necessarily that mean, meaning that our work is automatically going to get published, but they are, they have the eye to make sure that as best as possible, we're capturing that project in a way that is the most appealing to a particular magazine, yeah. for example. Um, but, you know, we've had over the years, you know, I think that exponentially the amount of no one comes to us to design a French colonial, you know, or whatever. Right. But um, in the beginning, I think we we had the potential of more of that kind of work, but we we were able to because of our, I guess our um, overhead was low, and we could. I guess I was going to say the key to really going through that is that keeping your your overhead low so that you don't have to yeah to take on that kind of work. Um, and then what, what happened is eventually as our work kept getting published and it was seen in one way, you would get less calls out of the blue from someone who wanted a Spanish uh, style house. And, and really it became, yeah, you know, 99% of the time now it's a hundred percent. If they send an email now, cause no one calls, it's always email. Right. Um, it's, they understand, they understand our work. And in fact, we don't even show our portfolio anymore. I don't even have a portfolio anymore. This the, our Rizzoli book will be our, yeah, our portfolio. I was going to say now, now your Rizzoli book will be your, your portfolio. Let's yeah. talk about that a little bit. Cause we're coming to the end here. Um, do you have a Rizzoli monograph coming yeah. out in October? It's being, yeah. being released. You can pre-order it now. Um, you could see it at Miss, uh, O'Rourke.com. Um, pre-order it there as well tell me how that happened did that just did that phone call just come out of the blue from completely out of the blue so i have for years have been dying to have a book published and have we've had several publishers come to us um but those publishers um require you to pay money to have your book published and i felt very uncomfortable with that and um, not because I didn't want, I, I, I wouldn't have spent the money, but to me, it felt like, well, isn't this really just a portfolio that yeah. we're it's designing? A vanity project. Vanity project that you're going to, yeah. because you have a network, you can distribute it. And it's like, 
you know, it's like magazines. The magazines don't, you don't, you don't pay the magazine to be in the magazine. They decide if you're, if your work is of interest, right? So I said, oh, this is not going to work. So, um, uh, and three years ago, uh, an editor had reached out to us and said, oh, you know what? Have you ever thought of being in in a book? And said, yeah, of course. And I said, well, let's think about it. And that process was taking a while. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, Rizzoli sends me an email saying, oh, um, we're interested in publishing a book. Would you like to have breakfast? And I said, sure. <laughs> um, and I even offered to pay. And they said, oh, no, 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 we've got this. So I was like, that was like, that yeah. was just happened before uh, COVID. I think it was October before COVID. Yeah. And uh, the book project has taken over two years. It's been a long process uh much like uh designing a project um but a little more stressful because so many things like it's a real cathartic process of like uh, going through the history of the office and re you know remembering the projects the people um you know deciding what gets edited in and what gets edited out um we narrowed it down to 25 projects representing our first 25 years and um, it was also a balance between built work and unbuilt work, um, which we thought was really important. And uh, that was that was a an item that was discussed with Rizzoli and our editor Mayor Russ, um, who Mayor Russ was our was actually the first editor to ever publish our work um, in Interior Design Magazine. So I kind of we. In the end, we kind of thought like this is sort of a full circle book. Like we, we came back to the people that we started with. Yeah. Uh, Tom Pfeiffer was incredibly gracious and is writing the forward or wrote the forward. Um, and uh, um, I'm really, you know, we're extremely thankful for everyone who's been involved with our office and made everything possible. Um, because without them, you know, without the clients, without the yeah our employees, our collaborators, our consultants, our builders, like it, it really, it takes, when you're a small business, you realize like how much effort it takes to get something built. Yeah. Um, and you know, you're, you're, you wear many, many, many hats. Um, but I am still super excited to wake up in the morning and to see what's next on the horizon or what's going to pop up and uh, either make me uh, incredibly happy or catch me by surprise. Um, yeah. But uh, that the, having the book, I feel sort of like I, I, I'm not, I sort of feel like that thing when someone drops the mic at the end, you know, like yeah. I'm done. Um, but you're not done. I'm not done. So <laughs> luckily as an architect, uh, I feel like I, won't be done until I am done. And yeah. uh, so this, I mean, they often say like, I mean, at least when I was a student, like they would say, you know, you're not really, you're not really hitting your stride until you're 50. So I'm 56. And uh, I feel like we're just, just beginning. Yeah. Well, there's some foreshadowing when you, when you described the book, you said it, it is uh, documenting the first 25 years of the firm. Right. essentially means there's going to be a second 25 years of the firm and, and Rizzoli books very often come out with volumes. Yes. Yes. So, yes. So yeah, I'm, I'm so, so happy. I mean, the, the book, 
was designed by uh, Joseph Logan. And uh, I'm hoping, again, it was very cathartic. You're nervous about like, oh my God, you know, this is going out now. This is, people are going to see it. What are they going to think? And, um, but I'm, I'm super happy. We're super happy. Yeah. I mean, understanding and hearing your origin story and all the experiences that you've had, um, it sounds to me from hearing your story that it was all part of the vision, right? That that you had that vision of having that, that studio and maybe it wasn't conscious, maybe it was conscious, but sort of um, having that dream you had you had mentioned before we started recording that that in architecture school, you would you know find yourself in the library flipping through Rizzoli monographs. Yep, you yep. Know? And, and a lot of us architects have done that, right? I've done that, I've done the same thing. And I've had my collection of Rizzoli monographs mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was part of the time that you and I went to school. It was, I don't know if it's the same way today, but I know that it was a critical part of our education and our experience becoming architects is experiencing and being inspired pre-internet by Rizzoli monographs. And yes. so it's really exciting to hear your story, to hear yeah. your whole story and to see how it uh, evolved to where you are today. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes in the next 25 years. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just my last couple of words is like, I think it's not that I didn't have a plan. So I didn't have, I had goals. I didn't yeah. have a plan. I never, I never, I, I throw something out way in front of me and I figure out how to get to it. So yeah. I didn't know how I was going to get a Rizzoli book or I didn't know how I was right. going to open up a store. I mean, sorry, an office, but uh, just make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, very, there's a huge um, power in vision, whether it's written down or not. Um, I agree. It's, it's, it's a big part of succeeding. Right, is, is to look at what your life could be and whether right. you document it. Um, and I recommend architects document it, write it down so you have something to look at and, and be your guide. Yes. Um, but for those of us who can vision, see that future, and then actively um, with those each decision you make, is this leading us towards that vision or not? Yep. Um, and that's how you end up with a portfolio that Rizzoli rings your doorbell. Right. right. That that's how it happens is that you have that vision and you work towards it and you say no to the things that are not part of that vision. Um, it's very intentional whether you write it down or not. Um, so I agree. It's exciting to hear your story, um, and I'm looking forward to seeing seeing where you 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 go next. Thank you. Um, I do too. Uh, before we go, I want to ask you the one question that I ask everybody and it's, sure. and, and I didn't warn you about this, but it's an easy question. Um, it, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I think it's, I think key is, is understanding what you would like to accomplish and being very open and giving in our community in terms of being able to develop a network so that you are part of this architecture design community so that you're, you are giving assistance and you are taking assistance to better your practice, better design, better someone else's practice. Um, Cause I, I think community is really, really important. And uh, we need, I think as a profession, um, we need to be, much more um, open about that. Yeah, that's I what agree. I, that's what I would think. I agree. I um, if if you're not part of our Entree Architect community, I think you'd fit right in. 
Um, we have a Facebook group with 8,000 architects in it, private group, and it's focused on architects helping other architects. Um, All right, And Great. so uh, it's uh, entrearchitect.com slash group. It'll lead you to a Facebook group that's a private group. Um, okay. And we'd yeah. love you to be part of it. So if you're Sure, interested. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. His name is Brian Masana. It's masanaorourke.com is the website. Go check it out. The book information on the book, Building Blocks, is there. Um, it's being released on October 25th, 2022. You can pre-order it right now. So go to masanaorourke.com. It'll be right there on the homepage. And click pre-order. It's uh, beautiful. It's a, it's a, and you should check out the website as well, masanaorourke.com. Brian, thank you for um, sharing your story here today at Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, go write a review. I would love to know what you think of this podcast and it helps other architects find us. So go do five-star rating if you like it. Share, write a review. I'd love it. And share a link to this episode with a friend because that's how we've grown. That's how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands of of architects throughout the world just like you. Thank you to our sponsors, RCAT and FreshBooks for their support of this episode. I ask you to support them because they support us. And if they're supporting us, they're supporting you. So go support them. Got it? Go support our sponsors. Links to our sponsors. So you can click on those links and go right to them. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we shared today are available at the show notes for this episode at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. All the shows are there, entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows. I think there are 11 of them there now. Go there, gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And I hope you're going to join us in Austin, November 1st through November 3rd, 2022. Those are the dates for the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting, our first ever live and in-person conference for you, the small firm architect community. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, and I will see you in Austin in November. Don't miss this. This is going to be great. EntreeArchitect.com slash annual meeting. It's a conference for you, small firm architects. Thank you for listening today to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. 
Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.